Before we begin our Torah study this morning, let's pray together. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us with your commands, with his commands, and commands us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Amen. I have never been one of those people who thinks that whatever happens must be the will of God. So just because something happens doesn't mean to me, well, that's God's will. That way of thinking has never appealed to me. It seems very fatalistic. And it doesn't fit in with, I, with what I read in the scriptures. And yet I recognize there are a lot of people who think that if something happens, it must be the will of God, that God wants that to happen. And I want to look at things uh, in the scriptures today that will help us, I think, in our study of Exodus, and as well, I hope, in your everyday life, your life of faith and your walk with the Lord. And first of all, I do think that there is a difference between what God wants and what he allows. So let's make that distinction. Often what we read as the will of God in our Bibles is a translation of a word that has as its essence the desire or the want of God what God wants. And there is a difference we can see between uh, what God wants and what people often do. And rather than say that everything that happens is because it's the will of God, I think it's more accurate to say a lot of things happen that God doesn't want to happen but happen in this world that is broken. And I want to take a moment and look at two prayers and psalms that are an expression of a desire for the will of God to be done. Psalm 19, verse 14 says it this way, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, the meditation of my heart. So the words of my mouth, what I say, and the meditation of my heart, the things that I ponder, the things that I turn around inside of me, the things I mull over, may these be acceptable unto you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Acceptable is a good word, but it doesn't quite capture an important quality of it. In, in Hebrew, this passage reads, And the key word that's translated 
acceptable or that phrase be acceptable unto you is based on a word ratzon. Say that with me, ratzon. And that has to do with what you want. And so if I, as a man, want something, I say, ani rotzeh. That's a different form. A woman would say, ani rotzah, the feminine form. But what the psalmist is saying is, may the things that I say and may the things that stir inside of me that have my heart's attention be pleasing to you. Let them be what you want, Lord. My rock and my redeemer. But there's another way of saying this that I think is just as powerful, maybe even more so. And it's this. May the things you want be the things that I say and that I meditate on in my heart. Do you see the difference? In one case, we are starting with ourselves, and in the other case, we're starting with the Lord. Psalm 143, verse 10, capture something too. It's another prayer. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Teach me. Let's say that together. Teach me. Teach me to do your will. That becomes the focus. We have a need to learn. How many can confirm this? There's more to learn. Some of what we need to learn is because we don't know. So we need to learn about, or we need to learn what or how. But the focus in Psalm 143, verse 10, is not on that type of learning. It's on the doing type of learning. Teach me to do your will. Do you get that? How many have ever known the will of God but found it difficult to do the will of God because the situation is challenging? So this is about being a disciple of the Lord, learning and doing. It's not just about being a student or a storehouse of information or someone who's trying to pass a pop quiz from the Lord and give the right answers. It's about learning and doing because that is genuine integrity. That's wholeness to learn and do. And these two psalms humbly acknowledge there's a gap between what we want to be and what we currently are and what we want to do and what we currently do. And yet the humility is also with faith because the heart wants integrity with the Lord. We want his will to become our will. We want to do what he wants for us and what he considers good and pleasing. We're not just trying to get by or to get away with something. When we were teenagers, when I was a teenager, 
and my buddies were doing things, we were doing things that we knew we shouldn't do, but we thought we were smart enough not to get caught. And when one of our, one of our pals was caught doing something stupid, we thought they were stupid. They should have figured out how not to get caught. Now, I bet none of you ever did that kind of thing or thought like that. I don't want to get caught. But we did. And sometimes we got caught. But we were just trying to get away with something. The true disciple is not trying to get away with something or to just see how close you can get before you cross the line. If, if you imagine like the center point up here is that line, the true disciple is not like this. who's trying to get as close as you can without going over the line. That's not the true disciple. The true disciple is looking at the line and saying, hmm. There's a proverb that says, the naive person, that's, that's one way of saying it. The Hebrew also can put it this way, the fool. The fool sees evil and approaches and then pays the penalty. And the wise person flees and is safe. So these two prayers are the prayers of people who are not trying to get away with something. They recognize there's a gap between who they are and what they want to be. But their heart desires to grow. We want to grow in our faith and our faithfulness, and we recognize a need to grow. And we also can acknowledge there may be a defect in us or an imperfection or some kind of brokenness or a wound, or immaturity, or ignorance, or inexperience, or whatever, because there are a lot of things that may make us a little insufficient. You can fill in the blank with your item. So it's normal and human to recognize that and to say, okay, this is where I am, but I want to be more with God. That's why Yeshua taught his disciples to pray this way, your will be done, Lord, on earth as it is in heaven. We pray this because we know something, and I want to make it really clear to us, not everything that God wants is being done on earth. Because if it were, there's no need to pray it, right? We pray it because we are offering ourselves to the Lord. 
and we're saying, we know there are some things you want to do. And here we are, we want, we want what you want. And we want what you want, Lord, to be expressed and manifest not only in the realm of eternity, but in the realm of everyday life, our life, our hearts. Now here's the thing, many people think that if God's sovereign, then everything that happens must be what he wants to happen. But actually, he has, as sovereign creator of this world, he has made room for us to exercise responsibility, to make decisions, to take actions which have real consequences. We're not just puppets, and we're not robots. God has made room for us to demonstrate love and to learn to love and to learn to be loved, to learn to give love and to receive love. He is the king of the universe. But he's made the world in such a way that there is room for us to learn to love him and to learn to do what's pleasing to him and what is good. Teach me to do your will. Your will. Teach me to do what you want. Now here's the reality. It's true about newborn human humans, not true about every animal, but it is true about us animals, the human animals. We are dependent on receiving love. We cannot take care of ourselves. Someone has to show love to us and care for us. They have to have enough compassion on us so that after we're born, we can survive. A little baby born, a human baby born, cannot take care of itself. Some species can, we can't. We are each dependent when we're born. And we are dependent because we're made that way, so everyone starts life needing to receive love from others, and we cannot make it on our own. We can't even survive. That's a fact. There are no exceptions. So no matter how hard life has been, you had a start where someone showed some love to you and cared for you, maybe not perfectly, absolutely not perfectly, but in some way they showed love to you, in some way. Without that, human beings die. We can't feed ourselves. We can't take care of ourselves. My sister texted me and, and said, our grandson is eating, meaning nursing, and pooping. He's amazing.
Now, here's another aspect of reality that is true for all of us. Every one of us receives love from God, and that's why we're able to love others. He first loves us. 1 John chapter 4 speaks of this very clearly. We'll look at two, two statements there. 1 John 4 verse 10. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And then verse 19 completes the thought and says, we love because he first loved us. So let's put those two realities together. God loves us first and people love us first. Every one of us has received love from God and love from people. We're all on the receiving end. We're all recipients. We're all dependent. We're all recipients of love. We're all dependent on love. And as we grow, all of us need to learn how to love others back, how to reciprocate, how to show others love and how to show God love. We have to learn to love people and learn to love God. It's a universal truth. It's true for everyone. Two more quick passages before we get to Exodus. And these are from the New Covenant scriptures that may help us think more clearly and both show a kind of thinking uh, that, that many people have that whenever something terrible happens, it must be the will of God and it must be because someone is guilty of something terrible. This terrible thing happened because the person's guilty. And here's one example in John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. As he went along, Yeshua saw a man blind from birth. Yeshua's disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Why was he born blind, Yeshua? Clearly because someone sinned, the parents or, or the man himself. And Yeshua's answer, neither. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, meaning that is not why he was born blind. And Yeshua doesn't say the obvious, that people are born blind and people are born with disease because this world is broken and needs to be fixed. But then Yeshua talks not about the cause but about what God does want to do. And he says, this has happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. The disciples want to know who sinned. Or they're making a statement, essentially someone sinned, that's why this happened. It's the effective cause of this tragedy. But it's not because of sin. That's not the explanation and that is not the cause and Yeshua then changes and says, 
There's a fix for the blindness, and the fix will bring glory to the Lord. Another way of saying it is, Yeshua says, look what's about to happen. It's going to bring glory to the Lord. What's the cause? Well, it wasn't sin. What's the outcome? God will get glory. Now, here's the second passage. It's in Luke 13, verse 4. Yeshua says, what about the 18 people who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them? Were they the worst sinners in Jerusalem? He's reminding his disciples about a catastrophe that they were all familiar with. And he's asking them a question. Do you think because that terrible catastrophe happened to them, they were guilty? They were particularly guilty? Because he... He wants to communicate something to his disciples and thus to us. It was not the will of God to punish these people because they were guilty of something terrible. I think Yeshua is teaching that some terrible things happen in the broken world. It's not because of individual guilt or the will of God. So what do we say when people are suffering in this broken world? You know what some people say? You must be guilty of something. Have you ever been treated that way? If you've got a problem, there are some people who think, oh, what they don't like about you is the first thing that comes to their mind. But that's not what Yeshua wants his disciples to do or think. What do we say to people who suffer in this broken world? We say this. We know God suffers with you. You probably heard this phrase, I feel your pain. It's, it's a cliche now. You know, like, I feel your pain. Uh, but it actually can be more than that because God is close to the brokenhearted. To heal the brokenhearted. And as we get ready to look at Exodus, I want to make a big distinction between being brokenhearted and being hard-hearted. The good news that Yeshua has that's spoken of again and again is for the brokenhearted and for the broken. But for the hard-hearted, it's a different matter. So let's look at Pharaoh for a moment. He had a serious heart condition. He was hard-hearted. Like other pharaohs before him, he viewed himself as a god, and he viewed the god of Israel as a nobody. And he viewed the people of Israel as nobodies. They did not deserve his attention or concern. Why should he do what the god of Israel says? Why should he care what the god of Israel wants? He didn't care. That was part of being hard-hearted. He just didn't care. And Pharaoh was the spiritual center of the cosmos for the Egyptians. He was the manager of the universe in a sense. The good life for Egyptians depended on Pharaoh. And whenever the natural universe or the social order were working well for Egyptians, that meant Pharaoh would get the credit. Pharaoh wasn't afraid of the God of Israel. There were lots of gods. But he was the God of Egypt on earth. Pharaoh thought. He didn't have the fear of the Lord. 
He had no respect for the God of Israel. Pharaoh didn't hold God in awe. He didn't care what the God of Israel wanted. He ignored the will of God, the will of the God of Israel. He did his own will. He did what he wanted, and that was a big mistake. That's what it meant to be hard-hearted. And God was not pleased with Pharaoh or Pharaoh's hard condition. And on several occasions after Pharaoh experienced the reality of one of the plagues, Pharaoh begged for relief. Exodus 8.15 describes one of those times when Pharaoh saw that there was relief. However, he hardened his heart and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron just as the Lord had said. He hardened his heart. Exodus 8.32 describes another time. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time as well and he would not let the people go. So he hardened his heart again and again. That was the condition. I don't know. Let me ask some of the, the guys here this. Did you ever have an experience growing up where you were arguing with somebody, your brother or a friend, and you said something and they said, oh yeah? And your response was, yeah. Did anybody ever do that? Okay, so you know that one. Or did you ever say something to another guy that was challenging? And his response was, says who? Do you remember? Some of you have had this experience. And then one more came to my mind. You say something to someone, and their response is, make me. How many remember that? And of course, you can relate to Pharaoh now, because in a sense, Pharaoh was saying, oh yeah? Says who? Make me. And the Lord said, okay. Okay. For a time, people like that think they can defy the will of God, but they can't successfully continue to defy the will of God or the great purposes of God. And one of God's great purposes was to show Egypt and Israel that Pharaoh was not a god. And God, the God of Israel, was judging the whole religious system and the worldview of Egypt and Pharaoh himself. And the Lord had ultimate goals. He would set Israel free. His great purposes would move forward. His covenant with Israel would move forward. And he would demonstrate that he is a redeemer. And he's able to fulfill his promises to Israel. Now, I want to wrap up today with some observations about Israel's change of heart. And if you remember from last week, we, we read in Exodus 6-9 that Moses said that the promise of freedom that God told him to announce to the people of Israel, he spoke that to the children of Israel 
but they wouldn't listen to him because they were so discouraged and because their slavery was so cruel. So the people were brokenhearted and they were discouraged. They, they couldn't heed what Moses was saying about the Lord's plan to rescue them and remember that the promise of redemption and freedom had earlier been met with enthusiasm when Moses came to declare that God was hearing their cries and was ready to deliver them. But that changed over time because of the cruelty and the worsening conditions. The people were not able to respond with such continued enthusiasm. That's what Exodus 6-9 is all about. And then there were nine plagues and the people's faith and enthusiasm waxed and waned. Sometimes it went up, sometimes it went down. But I want to take notice of the 10th plague because there was a definitive change and all the people were ready to act in obedience and to faithfully adhere to very detailed instructions that were given them. This week we read about that 10th plague, plague. Here's what the Lord said he would do and what the people needed to do. So there are two sides. What the Lord will do, say that with me, what the Lord will do and what the people need to do. Say that with me, what the people need to do. Exodus 12, verse 21 through 24. Moshe called for all the leaders of Israel and said, select and take lambs for your families and slaughter the Pesach lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop leaves and dip it in the blood, which is in the basin, and smear it on the two sides and the top of the doorframe. Then none of you is to go out the door of his house until morning. That's what the people are to do. You get that? Verse 23, for Adonai will pass through to kill the Egyptians, but when he sees the blood on the top and on the two sides, Adonai will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses and kill you. You are to observe this as a law, you and your descendants forever. This is what the Lord will do. The people were ready to heed what Moses told them from the Lord. It involves so many details. Every one of them was important. Details about a lamb, about timing, about blood on the doorposts, not on the windows, on the doorposts. And the children of Israel took to heart what God was going to do, and they were ready to do the will of God. They were learning to do what God wanted. Their hearts had become ready to learn. And to do. They were learning to do their part. And they were fulfilling that sentiment that was expressed later in the psalm that we read earlier, Psalm 143, verse 10, teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Now they're ready to learn and to do the will of God. Three things. Teach me to do your will. Three parts. And you know what our response can be? I'm ready to learn, Lord. I'm ready to do your will. 
And, and at that moment, God was ready to do something unprecedented. He would take his people out of slavery, out from the dominion of the Egyptian religious and political and social system. And in this way, the Lord would be honored and glorified. It's not a question of who was guilty in Israel that this happened. It was what was God going to do? And here's what he was going to do. He was going to have the final word. So if Pharaoh had this attitude, oh, yes, as who make me? The Lord's final word was this, Israel is my firstborn. The Lord's purposes would be fulfilled. His sovereignty would be affirmed. And, and, and his people would exercise their free will to learn and to do the will of the Lord. It's not one side or the other, it's both. God is the king who has will and desires. And people have the ability to learn the will of the Lord and the desires of the Lord. And what God is looking for is that we would learn to respond to him with love. He's shown us love. He's paid a price for us. He's enabled us to receive love from him and from other people. And he's looking for us to reciprocate, to respond, to acknowledge the gap, and to look for what the Lord will do. And that's how what's broken can be fixed. And that's how the good news of the Lord is actually experienced. And so that's why we pray, teach me to do your will, O Lord, for you are my God. And we pray, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be, be acceptable, be according to your will, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And that's why we say amen to these things. Thank you, Lord, for being king. Thank you, Lord, for being patient with us. Thank you, Lord, for teaching us. Lord, we choose the way of wisdom and humility before you. We don't want to approach evil and pay the penalty. We don't want to get away with things. We want to grow in doing your will. And thank you for your Holy Spirit who empowers us and for your word which instructs us. Thank you for our Redeemer who lives. In Yeshua's name we pray. Amen. So we're going to close now. <clears throat> And we'll close with Aaron's blessing. And for those of you who are joining us online, live stream or podcast, would you consider standing with us with a generous contribution? You can go to our webpage, bethisraelnow.com slash giving for all the details. And now Aaron's blessing. And I'm always happy when Cantor Aaron is here with us. Because then we get a double portion of Aaron's blessing.
We've got the Aaron who went before us all. And we've got the Aaron who is before us now. Yivarechecha Adonai v'yishmarecha, Ya'era Adonai panavelecha v'yichunecha, Yisa Adonai panavelecha, Vayasemlecha shalom. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause the light of his face to shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his face to you and give you his peace in the name of Yeshua, the Prince of Peace. Amen.